Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction, a podcast where we hear from the writers producing some of the best science fiction today. I'm Rob Wolf, and on today's show, we're going to talk about a wonderful novel about the powers of telepathy, future visions, astral travel, and also about racism and injustice. As regular listeners know, I usually riff off themes in the book we're going to talk about to give each episode a tongue-in-cheek title. But today's book is on point with this moment, and this moment is really so painful and yet also so important because it's putting attention on fundamental truths that this country has never grappled with. But essentially what I'm saying is I'm not really in the mood to be tongue-in-cheek. Tochi Onyabuchi is the author of Beasts Made of Night, its sequel, Crown of Thunder, War Girls, and of course, the book we're talking about today, his adult fiction debut, Riot Baby, which was published by Tor.com just this past January. He has graduated from Yale University, New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, Columbia Law School, and I'm not going to pronounce this as perfectly as a French speaker would, the Institut d'Etudes Politiques with a master's degree in global business law. Tochi, I'm pleased and honored to welcome you to the show. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. This was, I mean, I, I'm, it's a pleasure and an honor. Well, I, I just read on Tor.com about how emotionally taxing the last two weeks have been for you personally. So <laughs> so I'm especially grateful that you carved out time tonight. I know it's been a hell of a couple weeks and, and months. So so how are you tonight? I'm good, you know, busy, but but also blessed. I mean, it's it's a very peculiar time to be a black creative in America, particularly this time around. I know in previous instances, um, in conversations with friends in in journalism, in fiction, et cetera, et cetera, when there's been times of, of political upheaval in the country, particularly along racial lines, you know, publications will will reach out almost immediately and be like, okay, what's what's your what's the black angle on this? Like, you know, could you and it's almost as though they're sort of mining your pain and despair and anguish um, for, you know, your perspective and page clicks. But something interesting seems to be happening this time around where there are a lot of organizations, particularly in media and in fiction, that are reckoning on a very substantial and almost structural level with a lot of these underlying issues of racism. So it's 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 interesting to exist in this space now. I mean it's it's emotionally taxing <laughs> and and mentally draining, but also very interesting. It seems as though something different is happening. That's great to hear. There's been a lot of talk about how white people have to go through this process too. It's not a problem for black people to fix. And so maybe that has a little bit to do with what you're talking about, this self-reflection and this effort that seems to be underway, hopefully, and will continue. But that's interesting to hear that it feels different to you. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, I mean, you know, even the fact that you have major book publishers putting out statements affirming Black Lives Matter, Black Stories Matter, 
you know, and we'll see if structural change follows that. You know, every every year, Lee and Lowe and Publishers Weekly put out their their surveys about diversity in the publishing industry, and every single year, things are blindingly white. And so, you know, with these with these recent affirmations, you know, hopefully, momentum can can be maintained with regards to you know, diversity amongst the the workforce, but also you know the the domino effect of diversity in the types of stories that are being told. And I mean, the very fact that a story like Riot Baby could happen, I think, is a testament to that possibility. Well, let's dive in. That's my invitation <laughs> to, to ask you about Riot Baby. So Riot Baby is about a brother and sister, Ella and her younger brother, Kevin, and their lives move among several different places, South Central Los Angeles and Harlem, and Kevin ends up in jail on Rikers Island in New York City. And it's also about a lot of other things. It's about the trauma of centuries of oppression and pain that really echo through their lives. And, and that echo happens, you know, both psychologically, I guess, as, as trauma, historical trauma does. But it's also in some ways literal for Ella because she has these special powers. So she really feels more deeply and sees more deeply than a regular person. And and when we meet her, we know right away she's different. She can see the future, for instance. And as she grows, she seems to have powers that seem almost magical. She she can kill rats with her mind, uh, you know, blow up their heads. <laughs> and she eventually learns to astral travel. And I mean, there's a very sweet moment where uh, it's a really hot day and her brother, you know, Kevin says, make the room colder, you know, and she she works, she can do it a little bit. And then and then it gets hot again. And but she can create she creates a snowball, which you don't actually see her throw, but you get the feeling she's about to throw it <laughs> off camera. Uh, anyway, these are amazing skills. And, you know, maybe in a different story it would just be like, oh, she's a witch. And isn't that fun? But it's really double edged for her because, you know, it's delightful to make a snowball. But this capacity, her sensitivity, puts her in touch with a lot of pain. And so I thought maybe we could start by homing in on a particular moment uh, when her life takes a crucial turn and she's watching the news about the death of Sean Bell. And I, I maybe, I don't know if we need to say, but he's, he's a black man who was killed in Queens, New York by the police on the morning before his wedding in the 2000s, 2006, I think. I thought maybe this is a place you could tell us about Ella and how she reacts to Sean Bell's death and what happens to her then. Certainly. Ella is is an interesting character. I mean, she grew in many ways out of this idea. One of the things that I wanted to do with Riot Baby was sort of write my own contemporaneity. You know, I wanted to see what the future would be like for people my age, right? And then work backwards from that. And so she's about as old as I would have been during Rodney King, and she's as old as I would have been, you know, in the 2000s when Sean Bell happened. And she's sort of colored by all of those experiences. Like looking back, those are my first real political experiences of America, like as a child. And I thought that was fascinating to have that be such a fundamental part of how you learn about America and what it is to exist in this country. And another thing that I wanted to illustrate in Riot Baby was this sense of continuity. So when I first started writing Riot Baby in 2015, 2016, you know, there was this spate of videographic evidence of officer-involved killings. And 
for a lot of people, particularly given that these were, you know, these clips were proliferating across social media, a lot of people were seeing this for the first time. But if you were black, you you saw this as part of the pattern. You know, this went back to Oscar Grant. This went back to Sean Bell. This went back to, you know, Amadou Diallo. Like these are it's almost like, you know, those are names that you hear in the house, like growing up not as boogeymen, but as cautionary tales. But in that moment for Ella, when she's watching it, I wanted to sort of see if I could capture that newness of it, like that, oh, it's happening right now-ness of it. And uh, that is a moment that she's at the age where she's able to assimilate enough knowledge that seeing that and that married to the the powers, the increasingly em empathetic ability that she has, uh, it snaps something in her. Like she's she's changed as a result of having seen that in a way that I think a lot of people were changed when they saw footage, for instance, of, you know, Laquan McDonald's death or Philando Castile, this immensely traumatic visual experience. And that is something that Ella, by virtue of her powers, you know, is able to go through um, for better or for worse. At that moment, she she leaves her family, doesn't she? Isn't that the moment that she leaves? Yes, that is that is the moment that she leaves. Uh, she she witnesses that you know Kev comes home and sees that she's watching the news and that this man named Sean Bell has been uh, killed by the NYPD in particularly horrific fashion, and then she leaves. And you know it's interesting things. It's not particularly explicit the reasons why she leaves but there's i think you know one of the ingredients is fear like i need to get away from this but i think one thing that she knew about herself was that when she's angry she has the potential to break things to harm things to do damage and she's not yet able to control that and so Witnessing what happened to Sean Bell is something that could put her in a position where she lashes out at the people she loves the most, the people who are closest to her. She didn't want to risk that. But then, you know, following that, we get essentially a, you know, sort of training montage of her out in the desert trying to figure out how to, you know, how to best control her powers. So this is a way for her to get away from the more overwhelming experiences of white supremacy, but also a way for her to sort of build up her strength. It's really interesting because she's leaving in a way to protect her family. She's worried about hurting them because she has so much anger. And yet she leaves Kevin unprotected. When he is younger, you know, she's there for him and his life seems to be more directed towards school. And it there's a sense of more positive prospects for him. Uh, but eventually he ends up on, on Rikers, and he makes an interesting observation. Maybe it's a little bit surprising, and it's when a cop has thrown him to the ground and put his boot on his cheek, and Kevin thinks, and this is a quote, my body thrills to it. It's been like this ever since Ella left, like she took the force field protecting me with her, and you hit a certain age and realize the force field's a cage. And I thought, Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about how this force field, she was both protecting him, but it felt to Kev also like a cage. Yeah, that's a, that's a recurring theme throughout the book, this idea of protection 
as uh, you know, a sort of cage. You know, it's 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 there in the relationship between Ella and Mama, Ella and the pastor later on in the book when she's having that conversation about, you know, uh, uh, order versus justice or order versus peace. You know, you have in many instances this figure who wants to protect you from a lot of the worst that the world has to offer, that particularly, you know, white supremacist society has to offer. But oftentimes that means not letting the person being protected live as a full and fully realized human being, you know, live through your full capacity for for anger, your full capacity for joy, your full capacity for for any number of emotions and experiences and of course emotions that can be braided together to form all sorts of of combinations and there's a bit of that in kev where he's at that point in his life where he's like you know he's an angry teenager right and he sees a lot of the stuff that's going on around him and he's not yet able to articulate why he's angry or what exactly he's angry at but it feels like a sort of justified and clarifying anger. And it was something that being protected by Ella kept him from feeling or being protected by Ella protected him from knowledge that he was capable of that sort of feeling, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the whole idea of anger, I mean, there's a lot of anger in the book and it's unquestionably justified that both Kevin and Ella would be angry but it's also so destructive. Well, I'm thinking of Ella in particular because she has to leave her family. From the very beginning, I guess I'm thinking of the moment when Kev is born in 1993, and it's during the riots. They, he's nicknamed Riot Baby because he's born during the riots in Los Angeles that followed the acquittal of the cops who beat Rodney King. And Ella actually has a precognition. Well, she knows her mother's going to give birth to a boy, and... At that moment when, when his, her mother is giving birth, she associates his birth with the riots and she, she thinks, you know, in her, her mind, the bad thing that's happening, she associates with his being a boy. And her grandmother thinks she's scared, but you describe it as that she's actually just angry. She's so angry. And I thought, I guess there's a lot going on in that moment, but the, the <laughs> equating bad things with being a boy and she's not afraid during the riots, she's angry. I don't know. Is there... Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah. When I when I started writing Riot Baby, I was very angry, right? And it wasn't and I feel like one of the things that happens during these periods of of American unrest is particularly along a racialized, you know, vector is this idea of productivity or that the anger has to be productive or, you know, it can be as self-righteous as it wants. But, you know, if you're not protesting properly, if you're, you know, the, the riots are unproductive, the looting is unproductive, it's going to keep you from getting your goal of, I don't know, policy change or whatever, right? And there was a part of me, a very large part of me that while I was writing Riot Baby was essentially screw that. Like, I'm not here for respectability politics. You know, we've been playing, you know, black people have been playing the respectability politics game since time immemorial, right? And, you know, in the history of modern America, what has it gotten us, right? It, and that was, I think, a lot of what powered the, the I guess, 
omnipresence of anger in the book was it's this idea that it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be productive or what does what does anger that isn't burdened by the mandate of productivity what does that look like and is it even useful and i think the answer to that at least for me is yes because i did at the time find very personal catharsis in that sort of just like omnidirectional anger um that you know it didn't have to come with okay i'm going to channel this anger into marches or i'm going to channel this anger into like finding an organization to donate to um because then you know you if you don't do that you feel guilty for feeling angry and who does that serve and that like so i just wanted to really 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 dig into this idea of anger that's that's justified and not burdened by this mandate of of productivity and so you know ella it's interesting ella having that that precognition of kev being born and being born as a boy and feeling particular anger at that because she knows a lot of what will come with that the american experience of being a black boy in america at least a, a black boy in america without means and it's very particular for her she knows that it's different from her experience as a black girl and that you know in and of itself comes with its own set of specific trials and and tribulations and and ways of navigating the world but she already knows what this is going to mean for Kev and she can't prevent it. I think that's a big part of it too is it's a it's a sort of like Cassandra type thing where you know you know this horrific future is going to happen but you can't do anything about it. You're just sort of like you know you're you're bound to this post and you can't, you know, break out and prevent the thing from happening. Uh, so there was there, like there was like you said there was a lot <laughs> going going on there but that was the main thing that I wanted to play around with was this idea of you know it's okay to be angry I feel like there's a lot of talk about that now I mean there's a different understanding of uh, to the extent that there's been looting and I mean it seems everyone seems to agree that it was exaggerated to the relative to the size <laughs> of the peacefulness of the protests but to the extent there was, there seemed to be a bit of a rational conversation about it as, you know, like Trevor Noah did this amazing thing, which maybe you saw because I'm sure it got a million views wherever <laughs> platform it was on, or it was on his show, on The Daily Show, explaining the break in the social contract and why someone might tear down a store because it, they don't, they, you know, they, they, the, the contract that would normally make you, well, I'm not going to do him justice, so I'm not going to repeat what he said. <laughs> but it seems similar to what you're saying, but of course you were thinking of this years ago as you started writing this and your book comes out right now at a time when basically every sentence in your book seems highly topical. I think it's always <laughs> been topical, right? But it's always mm -hmm. been, it just so happens that everyone now realizes that it's always been topical, yeah. you know, for centuries. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it was fascinating on that Friday when I watched the third precinct in Minneapolis go up in flames. And I was like, that's right, baby. <laughs> that's that's the tweet, you know, essentially, um, because, you know, people would people would look at that. Right. Setting a police precinct on fire. Right. And leaving aside the fact of, you know, letting the cops evacuate beforehand and everything. And they would ask themselves, you know, what purpose does this serve? 
Like what, what's the, what's the goal? You know, if you're trying, is, is it, is it vengeance for, for George Floyd's murder? Like, is it, are you trying to, you know, abolish the police? Like, are you trying to introduce reforms? What purpose does it serve to burn down the police precinct? But I saw in that the very sort of enactment, because uh, also too, it was very targeted. It, it was very, very, very targeted. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't as though it was all sort of anarchy and bedlam. And no, like if you look at the, the protests in Minneapolis and elsewhere, it was very, very, very targeted. There, there were points in, you know, during the, the protests in Los Angeles, particularly when they were at their their most violent, where entire entire quadrants of South LA were left untouched, right? It wasn't like it wasn't like 92, 93. It, like it wasn't like back then where you were seeing a lot of black owned businesses, uh, for instance, that were sort of catching the cross, you know, being caught in the crossfire. But I, I just can't get over that image of the third precinct sort of going up in flames. And there are all these other all these other examples of the sort of, you know, like what we're seeing recently with regards to tearing down these statues of these colonialists and, you know, very racist white men of various stripes, you right, know, right. there was the there was a slave trader in um, in the UK whose statue was taken down and thrown in the river. In the and river. Then, yeah. They just tore it. Down. Yeah. They said there was some there was somebody who joked that. Um, you know, before, you know, administrators were like, oh, if you want to take him down, you have to go through the proper channels. And then, and then this guy was like, well, now he's in the proper channel. <laughs> and, oh, that's great. I, I thought that was hilarious. And then most recently, Christopher Columbus was beheaded. People will look at that and be like, oh, that's not productive. What does that serve? But like, you look at that and the, it's, the symbolism of it is just so striking. And the very fact that that act is committed, when for so long those statues had been up there unmolested, I think in and of itself is a sort of validation for this sort of clarifying anger that isn't filtered through you know, the quote unquote proper modes of protest. This idea of having an object for your anger, you know, a purpose, it reminds me of something that I read in the essay that Tor.com just published that you wrote. It must have been just in the last week. You address the idea of feeling that your writing may feel meaningless or, well, there's a quote. It is a thing that brings me joy. I feel useful doing it, even if that feeling is an illusion, smoke keeping me from seeing a difficult truth reflected back at me. And that made me want to ask you if you feel like writing makes a difference. Does it open people's eyes? Does it change minds? Does it move the world? Or for you, is it more about your personal journey and self-expression and exploring ideas? And, you know, it gives you pleasure. And if other people enjoy it, that's great. If they learn something, that's great. But that's not the point. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a question that I've bounced around a lot. I've I've over the at least the past couple of years have found myself pinballing between different answers, right? I used to believe that you know books could 
change minds and that they worked as sort of empathy machines, right? And then if more people read more books by more different people, that would, you know, have this domino, that would instigate this domino effect of eventually leading to a more equitable world. And then, you know, the idea became, okay, I just need the right person to read this book so that, you know, if they're a kid and they read this book, they eventually, you know, grow up and become a city councilor that institutes, you know, <laughs> you know, equitable policies. And maybe one day they grow up and become, you know, a U.S. senator and they end up leading the charge on, I don't know, like reparations or something like that because of an idea that they got in my book that they read when they were like 18 years old or whatever. Right. And it's almost as though this is all a dice throw, right? But then, because at at that point too, I was very, I was very much involved in in young adult literature and, you know, writing for kids, particularly when they're at that at such a formative age where they're super impressionable. And I don't mean that in the derogatory sense or in the way or in the sense of saying that they're easily molded. It's just that they're more open, I think, to influences than adults who are much more calcified in their beliefs or have had their beliefs confirmed for much longer and feel more comfortable sort of living in those ruts. And you know, I was writing for these these people at this immensely impressionable age, and I was writing diverse stories for them, but it didn't eradicate racism among the youth. You know, it was, <laughs> you know, it was that sort of thing where it, it it wasn't even like, okay, let's just like let all the racists, like the the old racists, die off, and then things will, you know, we'll get to a better place. And it's like, no, that doesn't that doesn't do anything about the systems that that allow racism to flour- racism to flourish, or even that that encourage or incentivize racism. And so, you know, I'd see these, these national paroxysms with regards to race constantly, you know, it was like a constant series of heart attacks for this country, um, particularly over the past, I'd say, uh, you know, decade, I think, you know, most definitely ever since Katrina, I think. But um, living through this period of American history and seeing in many ways how how little has changed. It can be very demoralizing, right? Particularly if you're in the business of myth-making, which is what I think writers are doing. But at the same time, I've started to sort of revise my opinion yet again in that I do believe that there is a role for writers, particularly writers of speculative fiction, in imagining different societies, right? Right now, we're hearing a lot or people are hearing a lot about police abolition. You know, what does it mean when somebody says abolish the police? What does it look like to have a world without police, right? But if you read Akweke Emezi's Pet, you get a glimpse of what that world can look like, right? If you read their book, you can see that imagining happening. You know, there are a number of of SFF books where you can you can get glimpses of Societies that are oriented around different priorities. And I think that's super powerful. And I don't think it's super powerful in the way that, oh, if the right person reads this book, then they can grow up to institute policy to make that happen. I I think instead it allows us to work the same muscle that can expand our moral imagination. I think that is part of the power of books and that they have. And I think part of it too is like, even though we may not necessarily see, or I may not necessarily see the type of positive change that I would like to see from the very fact that my books exist in the world, 
if you took writers out of the equation, if you took writing and storytelling and myth-making out of the equation, we would be such a lesser society for it. Amen. <laughs> You're making me also wonder about the role of social media because, you know, you mentioned Katrina, but it's also the the videos, which I, I truthfully can never watch. I mean, I've wa- I, mm-hmm. I watched a couple and now I don't watch anymore because, well, for obvious reasons. Yeah. But I wonder why now, I mean, there have been Mm. a lot of heinous things that have been recorded on video and what in this moment, because you could say the same thing about social media as, as, you know, sometimes writing like, oh, well, it could change the world, but then it doesn't. It's particularly about this issue about fighting racism and white supremacy. What do you think? I mean, why now did George Floyd's murder at the hands of police why was the video of his killing the trigger that other videos of police killings weren't? I think a big part of that is the coronavirus pandemic. I think that as and it's it, it's almost funny. It, like a lot of people seem to have forgotten that that it's still happening. But, you know, before before, you know, the week that video of of George Floyd's killing went live and it's it's funny because it was the same week that Amy Cooper you know the Amy Cooper uh, yes. Central Park incident Incredible. Was that same week i think because of the way in which coronavirus the covid-19 impacted america and so severely disrupted work life such that you know when you're at a job eight hours a day, five days a week or what have you, you know, that's a significant chunk of your energy, like not just physical and mental, but also emotional. And so much of that now has been displaced, you know, not just by work from home where things are a bit more amorphous, but by the skyrocketing unemployment rate. You have all these people that that have been spun about in the hurricane that has resulted from the the economic toll of the coronavirus pandemic. And so you have that backdrop. And I think in that instance, you have a lot more people paying attention to and devoting brain space to things like the George Floyd killing and its aftermath. And so when you see a lot of people talking about police abolition, you know, th- that didn't come out of nowhere, right? Like, you know, active activists and scholars like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, uh, Mariam Kaba, you know, they'd been talking about this stuff and trying to bring these movements about for decades, right? And and many others like them. You know, people, you know, activists on the ground in Chicago, particularly young activists, have been putting their heart and soul into trying to bring about more equitable society, particularly along the lines of, of police violence and what have you. But now there are many more people who don't necessarily have a a nine to five or a 10 to six that they have to get on a train or a bus early in the morning to get to. And so, you know, all of a sudden you're on Instagram or what have you and your friend, you know, posts in their stories, a little post about police abolition. And, you you know, all of a sudden you have the time and space to actually read it. And that friend, you know, has the time and energy to have gotten that from somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I think it's a combination of things. I think you have the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic. You have the ways in which social social media has in many ways democratized knowledge or allowed for it's it's allowed for a much easier dissemination of it but i also think too one thing that bears mentioning is that 
you know, it wasn't lost on people, the racialized dimension of the impact of COVID-19 on American life. You know, it was when it started getting reported because it started out as a public health emergency, right? Like it's your patriotic duty to stay home and keep people safe. And then news started to break about how the impact was disproportionate among communities of color, particularly black communities. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's more emphasis put on the economic toll that this thing has had on our country and how it's imperative that states reopen, that America reopen for business. And this whole dialogue around essential workers and the racial demographics of that. And it became very evident to a lot of people that a significant chunk of the American public was essentially being offered up for sacrifice. And I think it was not lost on a lot of those people, the the racial dimensions of that. And so all of that is sort of percolating in the in the background as this stuff is happening. And, and so I think what's really interesting about this time around is that a lot of people are understanding how pervasive anti-blackness is in American society. It's not just about police, right? You're seeing these reckonings in all these different industries. You know, EICs in food publications are stepping down because of racism. The CrossFit guy just resigned because of racism. And in book publishing, too, you're seeing these reckonings come about. And I think that's that I haven't seen before. Yeah, that's interesting. The intersection of all these things really amplifies the problem. So very well said and very interesting to hear your take. Just one final question, which maybe is going back a little to the origin of the book, but you're a lawyer and you worked uh, for a while for the New York Attorney General's office uh, in the Civil Rights Division. And I wonder how that informed Riot Baby. Yeah. To call it research makes it seem as though I, I, I dipped in and jumped out for the purposes of being able to write this book. But I drew very heavily from my experiences in public interest law to write Riot Baby. After I was at the AG's office, I worked with the Legal Aid Society. It was with their parole revocation defense unit. And so much of the Rikers chapter stems from what I saw, what I heard, what I learned about during that job because you know that job entailed to get up super early and then get to Rikers and the trip that Ella makes is essentially the trip that I had to make coming from New Haven and going to uh, Rikers Island where I was to spend all day working and then I would make the trip back but I essentially you know I all the time that I spent on there acted on me in a very interesting way and I knew that I had to write about it in part because Writing is just how I process things. It's how I organize the world inside my head. It's how I try to make sense of things. And in many ways, it was also sort of a genre of therapy. Now, granted, there's no there's no real substitute for talk therapy, but this was, you know, this was a way for me to to undergo a lot of those same dynamics. Um, it sounds very simplistic to say, but writing this book made me feel better. Um, and then so there's a lot sort of bottled up in that statement, but a lot of what's in that book was stuff that was inside of me that I was thinking about and feeling about and that I had to get out. I, I had to just not expel, but more expectorate this, you know, this experience of having spent all this time in Rikers, having spent all this time trying to work with the recently, the recently released from, from jail and prison and trying to help them reintegrate into society, both on a personal but also on a pol- policy level. So, so much of the mechanics of various aspects of the book 
are drawn directly from those experiences. But I think more importantly, the sort of social justice bent of the book, the idea of bringing about a more equitable society rather than a type of story that merely affirms the status quo and where the big change or narrative arc is embodied in change in the protagonist, so to speak. No, this was a book about changing the world. And I think I learned a lot about not just how that can come about, but the very fact of its coming about through my work in public interest law, uh, but also in law school where I was first introduced to that entire world. Well, thank you for sharing the product of your journey and your thoughts and your imagination. Thank you for expectorating this story. <laughs> Is that a, can you make that a gerund, expectorating? Well, anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've been talking to Tochi Onyabuchi about Riot Baby, which came out in January from Tor.com. Please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode and leave a review to show your support. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm Rob Wolf, and I produce and edit the show. And I work with the founder of the New Books Network, Marshall Poe, and the editor of the New Books Network, Leanne Wilson. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>